Columbia Recording Corporation announces the introduction of a new record in the 35-cent field, a record which will take over and enhance the reputation built up by Vocalion for highest quality recordings at lowest cost, a record which will be in every respect a worthy companion to the justly famous Columbia Red Label 50-cent record. The name of our new record is OK, spelled O-K-E-H. The new label and envelope, as you can see, present a rich and dignified appearance not ordinarily associated with records in the lowest price class. The OK trademark needs no introduction to most of you, having represented for a number of years one of the best-known 75-cent records on the market. Listen to Gene Drumout, Blue Rhythm Fantasy. The first of the independent record labels were primed to take advantage of the recording phenomenon after Gannett Records successfully sued Victor Corporation in 1921, which along with Columbia had been fiercely guarding the technology through patent laws. But the ensuing court victory removed Victor's rights to exclusivity over the method of making lateral cut 78 RPM records. Some labels thrived with recordings uh, by jazz greats, but the majors were still reluctant to put black artists on record, creating a schism between the major and independent labels for the next 50 years. Enter the race record. Sound recordings of the early 20th century that were made exclusively by and for African Americans. The term is sometimes said to have been coined by Ralph S. Peer, who was then working for OK Records. Welcome to Deadwax 78s. I'm your host, Sean, and yeah, that's the podcast where we're going to talk about all these old-timey records and old-timey musicians, things like that. Today's episode is OK Records Was OK. Records had been around since Thomas Edison baked that particular scheme in 1877 when he invented the phonograph to record and play back sounds. Though a breakthrough in technology was also a failure in terms of quality and he didn't seem to give that much thought again. But then others picked up the idea. In the midst of this battle of one-upmanship between legendary inventors came A. Mill Berliner, a name hardly recognized today. He took the basic concept of the others but altered it significantly for the gramophone, mainly so he'd be free and clear of Edison's patents on cylinders. Berliner used discs which produced much better sounding recordings which launched the popular music industry centered around playback of a specific performance. Although the first phonograph recordings were made as early as about 1901, few were made by African Americans, and many of those were novelty acts. It was not until 1920 that black musicians and singers began to be recorded with any regularity. That was the year in which black composer and pianist Perry Bradford championed a young black female entertainer named Mamie Smith. 
Her first recording, a version of Bradford's Crazy Blues, was so successful that the General Phonograph Company's OK label launched a series called Original Race Records. The series was advertised exclusively to African Americans and Black-owned newspapers. Over the next several years, Black musical director Clarence Williams signed and recorded for OK, uh, many leading blues and jazz and gospel artists, including Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, and Lonnie Johnson also recorded. However, the onset of the Great Depression in 1929 had nearly crippled the recording industry, as few people had any money to spend on something as frivolous as music. Record sales plummeted, almost all of the thriving independent labels of the 1920s folded as their audiences were hit hardest by the economic crunch. And as a result, the opportunities for the fringe styles all but ended. Jazz had moved into the mainstream by this time, so they were spared, but blues dried up and country music struggled. Here's part one. West End Blues, Louis Armstrong in his Hot Five. OK Records, 1928.
OK started out by issuing popular songs, dance numbers and recordings of vaudeville skits, which was similar to what other record labels did at the time. They wanted to sell records for a niche audience that the mainstream labels had ignored. The labels thus produced German, Czech, Polish, Swedish, Yiddish records for the immigrant communities in America. But that's not how we remember them. OK was founded by Otto Karl Eric Heinemann, O-K-E-H, from Lundberg, Germany, a German-American manager for the U.S. branch of Odeon Records, which was owned by Karl Lindstrom. In 1916, Heinemann incorporated the Otto Heinemann Phonograph Corporation, set up a recording studio and a pressing plant in New York City, and started the label in 1918. Now, the first discs were vertical cut, but later the more common lateral method was used. The label's parent company was renamed the General Phonograph Corporation, and the name on its record label was changed to OK. The common 10-inch disc retailed for 75 cents each, the 12-inch disc for about $1.25. The company's musical director was Frederick W. Hager, who was also credited under the pseudonym Milo Riga. OK's earliest releases included music by New Orleans Jazz Band. In the 1920s, they recorded blues singer Mamie Smith. The records were popular, and the label issued a series of race records from 1921 to 1932. This series included music by Williams, Lonnie Johnson, King Oliver, and Louis Armstrong. One of the more popular series was Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven, who recorded about three sessions per year between 1925 and 1928. After the success of these records, Armstrong's records were transferred to the popular series as well, which was marketed towards a white audience in 1928. OK's recordings were distributed by other labels, including Parlophone in the UK. While musicians did not receive much payment for entering the studio, they copyrighted the songs they did record with the hopes that other bands would record the piece in turn they would make a steady stream from royalties. Here's part two. Eva Taylor with King Joe Oliver. I'm busy and you can't come in. OK Records, 
Kay had further prominence in the African-American demographic as musicians Sarah Martin, Eva Taylor, Shelton Brooks, and the Handys Orchestra recorded for the label. O.K. issued the 8000 series for Race Records. The success of this series led O.K. to start recording music where it was being performed, known as remote recording or location recording. Starting in 1923, OK sent mobile recording equipment to tour the country and record performers not heard in New York or Chicago. And regular trips were made once or twice a year to New Orleans, Atlanta, San Antonio, St. Louis, Kansas City, and Detroit. The OK studios in Atlanta also catered to what was known as hillbilly stars at the time. One of the first was Fiddling John Carson, who is believed to have made the first country music recording there in June 1923. A double-sided record with the little old cabin in the lane and the old hen crackled and the roosters going to crow. In 1926, OK was sold to Columbia Records. An ownership changed to the American Record Corporation, ARC, in 1934, and the race record series from the 1920s ended. CBS bought the company in 1938. The OK label was for rhythm and blues during the 1950s, but jazz albums continued to be released. Here's part three, that fiddling John Carson, the old hen crackled and the rooster's going to crow on OK. Thank you. 
Releases were infrequent after 1932, although the label continued to 1935. But in 1940, after Columbia lost their rights to vocalation name by dropping the Brunswick label, the OK name was revived to replace it, and the script logo was introduced as a demonstration record that announced the event. The label was again discontinued in 1946 and revived again in 1951. In 1953, OK became an exclusive R&B label when its parent, Columbia, transferred OK's pop music artists to the newly formed Epic Records. OK Music Publishing Division was renamed April Music. Much of the success of OK in the 1960s was due in part to the dispute with Epic and OK directors, and OK gradually slipped and sailed and was quietly retired by Columbia in 1970. And, and have I mentioned Black Swan? Well, the control of white-owned music companies was tested in the 1920s when Black Swan Records was formed in 1921 by African-American businessman Harry Pace. Black Swan was formed to integrate the black community into a primarily white music industry, issuing around 500 race records per year. The creation of this company brought widespread support for race records from the African-American community. However, some white companies in the music industry were strongly against Black Swan and threatened the company on multiple occasions. Pace not only issued jazz and blues and gospel records, but he put a race records that deviated from popular African-American categories. These genres included classical, opera, spiritual, chosen by Pace to encourage the advancement of African-American culture. Pace urged record companies owned by white individuals to recognize the demands of the African-Americans and increase the flow of race records in the future. Black Swan was eventually purchased by Paramount Records in 1924. 
Here's part four, Lucille Hageman, Arkansas Blues on Black Swan. I wish I owned a Black Swan record. Thank you, YouTube. Great Depression destroyed the race record market, leaving most African-American musicians jobless. Almost every major music company removed race records from their catalogs as the country turned to radio. Black listenership for the radio consistently stayed below 10% of the total black population during this time, as the music they enjoyed did not get any airtime. The exclusion of black artists on the radio was further cemented 
when commercial networks like NBC and CBS started to hire white singers to cover black music. It was not until after World War II that rhythm and blues, a term spanning most subgenres of race records, gained prevalence on the radio. Thank you for listening. This has been Deadwax 78s. I'm Sean, and you know what? I'll catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.